0: My hope is in the Lord, the Lord, who gave himself for me. For me. Well, good morning. This is Lane Jones, pastor of Caucus Baptist Church, speaking for the Beacon Beaconful Broadcast. And as the situation over in Israel and, and the Gaza Strip is continuing to go on, you see a lot of protests against the Jewish people and even against the nation of Israel's right to exist. Now, this should never happen from the Christian community, and I would say that most of this is not happening from the Christian community. It's happening as a direct result of communist ideology with the oppressed and the oppressor and then making the Palestinians the oppressed and Israel the oppressor. And so a lot of it stems from that communist ideology. So you have a lot of secularists that are behind this, as well as a lot of Muslim radicals who are seeking to overthrow Israel's right to exist, thinking that they have no right to that land. And so uh, there's a number of people that are lining up and showing really the deep-seated hatred, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the Jewish people as well. As I said earlier, Christians should never be part of this, and the reason why is because if you believe your Bible, and to be a truly faithful Christian, you need to believe your Bible, both the Old and the New Testament— There are many statements that God has made of his loyalty to the Jewish people and to the nation of Israel. Let me read you just one of them. It's out of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. I'm starting at verse 35, which says this, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, If heaven above can be measured, and if the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. So what is he saying? He's saying it's not going to happen. He says you're going to have to be able to measure all of space before I throw the, the nation of Israel away. He's saying that the sun is going to have to stop shining and the moon is going to have to stop hanging in the sky before I'm done with the nation of Israel. So you can see God clearly saying here, he's not done. Now, it's kind of interesting as well that he says they will not cease to be a nation before me forever. And they did cease to be a nation for a time. And this happened more than once when they were taken out of their land, specifically in the 600s B.C., And basically, the nation was in waste for about 70 years. And then, after the Romans came in in 70 AD, about 40 years after Christ was on earth and wiped out the nation of Israel, they ceased to exist for over 1,800 years. And yet, God, in his faithfulness, has seen to bringing the nation back. Now, Paul is writing this in Romans chapter 11, where we're studying today in the years before, just shortly before, Israel would be destroyed by the Romans. And he has something very interesting to say as we've been dealing from chapter 9 all the way through this chapter today on the issue of, is God done with Israel? So let me just read you the first verse of chapter 11, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Paul writes this, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for each person that's willing to listen to it. Pray that you bless them for it. Pray that you'd help me to be clear and understandable. Lord, this section is as up to date as the news this week, and yet it was written almost 2,000 years ago. And we're grateful for the power and the eternal message of your word. And so we pray that you give us discernment as we look into it. May we rightly explain it. May your spirit drive it into our hearts. And, Lord, make a difference in how we think and therefore how we live, we pray. We pray for those who may not know Christ yet, that you might help them to come to know him, to know his life eternal. And we pray that you bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's really tragic, but if you look back in church history, there were times when, for instance, over in Russia, which at the time was considered a Christian country, was, again, not acting Christian at all. This is before the Communist Revolution, and yet they would have what they called programs, where they would literally drive Jewish people out of their communities and just seize their land. And that happened in places throughout Europe. And there have also been times when we've seen, even in our generation, synagogues bombed or Jewish people intimidated. It just happened just recently in a college in New York where Jewish students had to lock themselves into a room as a crowd around them was banging, trying to get in and do them harm. And what a horrifying thing that would be. Just this past week, my daughter, who's teaching school over in Guam, had a lockdown. It was, uh, thankfully, it was. Not something that was threatening the students, but it was a real lockdown that someone found dead on the campus. It had been a, a murder-suicide. He evidently killed his girlfriend. And just the terror of that and what that brought not only to my daughter but to the students that she was teaching should really wake us up that some of these things that are happening across the country, they're not funny. They're not cute. They need to be dealt with. The college college uh, students who were involved in trying to intimidate these Young people and do them physical harm ought to be expelled, no questions asked. If any of them are here illegally or don't have citizenship, I think it'd be very appropriate to send them back wherever they belong. And we as Christians ought to be on the forefront of defending the right of the Jewish people to live and exist and have a country of their own. And why do I say that? Well, because God made promises, both in the Old and the New Testament, that he was going to be loyal to the nation of Israel. And so he also said in the book of Genesis he would bless those that bless him and curse those that curse him. And yet, tragically, we have, as Christians, and I'm talking now about those who call themselves Christians for thousands of years, uh, have often failed miserably to imitate the love, loyalty, and the wisdom of God as it applies to how we deal with Jewish people who we do not agree with theologically. We completely disagree. We think that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We we also Proclaim from the rooftops that Christ is the only way to heaven, but that does not mean that we do not support their right to exist in peace, that we do not support their right to reach as many as they can with their faith. They have every right to proclaim their faith, and they have every right to live it, and we need to support that as we should with any person or people group but uh, God has put a special blessing on this nation, and we need to recognize it. So there's going to be three major things we're going to talk about in this particular chapter. The first one is Israel's rejection of Christ is not total, and we'll see that in chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. We also will see that Israel's rejection is not final, and we'll see that in chapter 11, verses 11 to 27. And then we're going to see how we live out these truths then with the Jewish community, our neighbors and friends who disagree with us theologically, but who we should love as fellow human beings made in the image of God and as people that our Savior came to die for, even though maybe they don't realize it as of yet. So let's talk about, first of all, Israel's rejection not being total. So we had that question, has God cast away his people? Paul's answer is certainly not, and notice some reasons. He says, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, I myself am an Israelite. How can I say that God has cast away his people? Verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant, according to the election of grace. That's a really important point. You can't say that every Jewish person has rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He said, I'm an Israelite myself. Secondly, he says God has more patience than some of his choicest servants did, even in the Old Testament. So he's using the example... Maybe many of you might remember this, when Elijah the prophet was on earth, and he was a tremendous man of God. And his great desire was to see his nation turn back to the Lord. And he's living in a time when Israel was divided between the north and the south. He's in the northern kingdom, which was apostate. They were not worshiping the one true God. They were not going down to the temple to worship at all. They were worshiping a God that they had made up. There were two golden calves, one in... Town of Dan in the very far north of their country, and the other one was more along the border in Bethel. And so they had these two idols that they would worship. They called them the Lord, they called them the right name, but they were obviously false gods. And so there were a king and a queen on the throne in Elijah's day called Ahab and Jezebel, very, very wicked individuals. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tells us that there were no such leaders as bad as Ahab and Jezebel in the history of the nation of Israel. And so Elijah is living during that time period, and Jezebel was the worst of the of the two. And she was actively involved in destroying as many of God's prophets who were loyal to the one true God, the God of Israel. She was trying to destroy them because she was a de- dedicated pagan and worshiper of Baal, and which was a false god that was typical in the Canaanite religion. And so there was an official actually in her government, she did not know this, who was hiding about 100 of the true prophets of God in a cave, feeding them with the very, very basics, bread and water, but at least they were able to live. I mean, so great was her persecution against the prophets of God, but she couldn't get her hands on Elijah. So one particular day, Elijah had marched into the court of Ahab and told him there was going to be a famine and that it was not going to rain until he said so, and he marched right out. You can read about this, by the way, in 1 Kings chapter 17 and following. And so they may have laughed at him at the beginning, but as time went on, that drought continued until it lasted over three years. Now, if you can imagine, when we go without rain around this area, and this is a very rich area in trees and grass and that type of thing. And if we go, say, a month, or so without rain in the summer. It can get pretty bad. You, you notice the grass becomes burnt, sometimes it's still alive, is very brittle. And imagine if you went for three years without rain. Imagine the devastation. At the end of three and a half years, Elijah the prophet shows up. Ahab had been searching for him, trying to find this guy who had said that it wouldn't rain till he said so, trying to get him to change his mind. And finally, Elijah shows up, and he he wants to have a contest between the false prophets of Jezebel and Ahab and himself. And you may recall how God clearly showed that he was the one true God. Many of Jezebel's prophets were killed in that contest. And the result was Elijah was very hopeful that the nation would come back and turn to the Lord. And so Elijah actually begins to pray for rain, and God answered, and there was a tremendous rain, and, of course, all the people were really excited about that, including King Ahab. Elijah was hoping that this might be the very thing that would turn not only the common people, but the king and queen themselves to know and love and serve the one true God. And Ahab might have been leaning that way, but when he got back home, Jezebel had not gone with him to the contest between her pagan prophets and Elijah. When he got back home, Jezebel was not a happy camper. Even though it was raining, the fact that her prophets had been killed, the fact that Elijah was successful in in turning many people back to God so inflamed her that she sent a message to Elijah saying, may the gods do so to me and more also if I don't have you like one of my dead prophets by tomorrow at this time. I mean, she basically said, you're a dead man. Now, as a result of that, Elijah, who was hoping for national revival and really had staked so much of his life on that goal, realized it was not going to happen. Jezebel was not going to let that happen. And not only that, but she was out to kill him. And so he turned and ran out of the country and actually went miles and miles to the south, to the very place where Moses had taken the Ten Commandments called Mount Horeb. And Elijah is up on Mount Horeb, basically himself and God, and is just miserable. And at that point, the Lord came to him and he said, what are you doing down here, Elijah? The idea is God's questioning him. Okay, what's going on? God already knew, obviously, he's trying to awaken Elijah's conscience. And what Elijah says is exactly what Paul's quoting here. He said, you know, I've... They've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. He said, I'm the only one left, and they're seeking my life. And what is Elijah basically saying? He's, he's, he's really listing the sins of his own people against God. Now, the Lord said in response exactly what Paul quotes here, and that is, you're not alone. You know, I have over 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. But what's Paul's point? Paul's point is that we as human beings may have less, we do have less loyalty to the nation of Israel than God does. God sees that everybody isn't an unbeliever. And whenever, whether it be the Christian community or the secular community, kind of broad brushes the Jewish community, how vicious, how wicked is that? And so uh, Paul is saying, look, first of all, not everybody is an unbeliever. I'm a Israelite, I'm a believer, God has more patience with his people than we do. And he goes on and he says there are currently a remnant to this day of believing people. Of course, that would obviously be true. All the apostles were Jewish. So many of the people who were at Pentecost, they were either Jewish or Jewish proselytes. The gospel goes forward because of Jewish people. Now, again, this doesn't mean that the majority of Jewish people— had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but there was a decent amount that had. And so Paul summarizes that in verse 5 of chapter 11, saying, even so then, at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And what he's pointing out is it's like it really has been down through time. And that is most people are on the wrong side of the issue of God. Doesn't matter what nation you're looking at, that's the way it works. And so salvation has not been the majority opinion of man. Most men are turning their backs on the one true God. But it's always been salvation for all people has always been God's grace. It's always been the Lord reaching out to us. And of course, we need to respond to him. So he says in chapter 11, verse 6, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Now, what's he saying? He's saying grace and works are like oil and water. They don't mix. Now, what does he mean, grace and works? Grace means that God gives you salvation. Not that you earned it, because Christ purchased it for you, and all you did is accept that gift by repenting of your sins and turning to Christ as your Savior, your Messiah. It was God's grace. It wasn't something you earned. You didn't do anything. It's not how well you kept the law. It's not how righteous a person you are. It is the fact that when Christ died on the cross, his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for all your sin. And that's why he says it's by grace. It's not of works. If you add works into it, and there are some, even in the Christian community, here's what they think. They think, well, okay, I've got to accept Christ. That's true. But then I've also got to do my part. I've got to keep a righteous life. And what you're doing is you're saying that the sacrifice of Christ is not sufficient to save you from all your sin. Because that's exactly what God says happened on the cross, that Jesus died for all your sin, past, present, and future, and that when you accepted him as Lord and Savior, you're accepting him by faith, and then you receive his, his grace, his help, his unmerited favor, something you did not earn, and you are given salvation as a gift. It's not something you earn. So what about those that don't believe? Whether you're Jew or Gentile, and Paul's talking specifically about his own people, about the Jewish people, he says, what then? I'm in verse 7 now. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So he's saying as a whole, the nation of Israel is in a state of blindness. That means most people in the nation of Israel of his day, and it's true today still, are not accepting Jesus as their Messiah. They have not then obtained what they're looking for. So the question is, well, what would the nation of Israel be looking for and their people? Well, I think we could mention any one of these three things. First of all, it would be God's Messiah. And you say, well, if Jesus was the Messiah again, why did they miss him? Well, because in unbelief, many hung on to their sin and self-righteousness. Now, what I mean by that? Unbelief. Well, first of all, Christ did many, many miracles during his day and and, then changed many, many lives. And yet people said in his day, and it's clear when you read the Gospels, they just wouldn't believe that he was the Christ. And so if Jesus is claiming to be the Christ and they're refusing to believe that he's the Christ, then the logical conclusion is he must be a blasphemer and may be empowered by Satan, which is what many people came to. But there was the element of unbelief. Then there's also the element of sin. What do I mean by that? And that is simply this. I don't want to do what Jesus is asking me to do. To follow him meant you're giving up your rights to all of what you have and what your goals may be, because he's God. He has every right to ask for that. And so it may play out with different people. With one particular guy, he says, sell everything you got and give it to the poor and come and follow me. That man wouldn't do it. Another person said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, well, I don't have a place to lay down my head tonight. And so it may mean that you lose your comfort. Jesus told different times about the fact that to follow him will often involve problems in your family. He said, if you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. And he said, a man's foes will be those of his own household. And this has certainly played out down through the ages, that we as Christians do not have the right, we're not given this by God, to force people into conversion. You can't do that. God has given each of you, and myself included, a conscience that we're accountable to follow. He's given us a will that we're accountable for what we choose to do. And so you're not able, we're not able to force anyone into accepting Christ. And this is, again, you say, well, then why were there things like the Crusades? And why were there um, religious wars in Europe? And just to be quite frank and honest with you, because people didn't know the Scripture, if you recall, there were a lot of people that were told not to read the Scripture. And so they wouldn't have known Romans chapter 11. They wouldn't have known Jeremiah chapter 31. They wouldn't have known what God said. But that is, they were accountable because of their ignorance and and the terrible things that were done. But if we just understood our Bible, we'd understand that, yes, Christ did say, look, you're going to follow me. You're going to follow me as God. That's what you're going to have to do. and That means I'm going to have to forsake whatever sin Christ puts his finger on in my life, whatever even good thing that I want to hang on to. If he needs uh, to to use it for his service, he's got every right to it. People weren't willing to do that. Another problem, and this is a big problem, is my self-righteousness. And I think many of you who listen may be falling in that category. You have to be careful about this. And that is, the bottom line is, is, in your own heart and mind, you don't really believe you need a Savior from your sin. You may be saying to yourself, well, Pastor, I'm a good person. You know, I go to church a lot, or maybe you go to a synagogue or a mosque or something else, and you say, well, I... You know, I'm a very religious person, and I don't uh, do—I'm good to my neighbor, and I do all these things. Let me just say this. I'm grateful that you are faithful to go to your church. You're a Christian. I'm grateful that that you're a good neighbor. I'm grateful for those things. But that does not get you into heaven. The Bible says that all of our righteousness—this is in Isaiah 64, and verse 6. The prophet said, all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. And he was talking about the kind of rags that a leper would wipe his open sores with, that kind of grotesque. He's saying that, look, we're not anywhere close to the holiness of God. The sin of self-righteousness, thinking I do not need a Savior for my sin, that somehow I'm going to be able to stand before God and I'll be okay. It just isn't so. And so what about this statement then? He says, well, they have not obtained what they're looking for, uh, which could be, first of all, God's Messiah. It could also be God's righteousness. Why? Because they were seeking it through the law instead of through faith in Christ. And that's an easy thing to do. We, we can do the same thing in our churches today, thinking, well, my church attendance or my tithing or this or that is going to make me righteous before God. And it's clear it's not. Of course, Israel is also seeking God's kingdom. And of course, this is a major reason why many dismiss Even the possibility that Jesus of Nazareth could be the promised Messiah because instead of bringing in God's kingdom, clearly God's promised kingdom did not come. And so people say, well, how can Jesus be the Messiah if he didn't bring in God's kingdom? And what they're missing is that you will not have the kingdom of God on earth. There is no way for that to take place until you solve the issue of the human heart. And you've seen this repeated if you look down through history, even nations that are prospering where the people are what we would think would be happy. And how, again, how I would judge a lot of what a lot of people would say is well, we're prospering, you know, we're at peace, we're on the top of the heap. You'd, You'd think that people in those kind of positions would find happiness and joy, and they don't. You think about even our own country. We've been the most prosperous country very possibly in the history of the world and what has resulted from it. We have we have millions of people who are discontented because money and possessions really don't bring happiness. So if you're going to bring the kingdom of God to earth, you've got to first solve the problem of the human heart. And the only way to do that is to solve the problem of sin. And let me ask you this question, how are you going to do that without a sacrifice? We've seen from the From the dawn of time, the very first sacrifice performed by God in Genesis chapter 3, as a direct result of sin. And even in the Old Testament, there was the statement that God gave to Moses in Leviticus 17.11, where it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, are we really thinking that animal blood is going to solve the question of the human heart? Well, it certainly hasn't. Jesus Christ has changed people. People have been put on a totally different course who've truly accepted him as Savior. And I understand that that doesn't make Christian people perfect, but it does make them radically different. I also understand there are a lot of people that claim to be Christians who are not, who are just Doing, going through the motions, just as every other religion has people that do that. And it is a living, vital relationship with Christ that is the secret of truly knowing God and having salvation. And so, Paul goes on. He says, and the rest were blinded. Let me start back again at 11, verse 7 at the top. It says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. So, There are Jewish individuals on both sides of the issue of salvation through Christ. The quest I'm talking about is the longing and search for God's Messiah, God's righteousness, and God's kingdom. And God's elect have found the Christ and the righteousness of God. Paul's clearly saying that he's one of them. He also says that unbelievers have been blinded. Now, I know you're probably asking, why? Why would unbelievers be blinded? I'll give you an answer to that in just a minute. Hang on for, to that one. But Let's first see that this is indeed taught, not merely in the New Testament. It's, Paul's actually deriving this from the Old Testament. So he goes on. He says, Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And he's taking quotes out of both Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 4, And Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 10. And so what we're seeing from that passage is that both Moses and Isaiah prophesied that God would do this, that God would put blindness upon unbelievers in his own nation, the nation of Israel. I find that interesting. Not only does does Moses and Isaiah mention this, but listen to this prayer that David prayed against his enemies. And let's be honest, David had enemies within and without outside of the nation of Israel. And here's what David writes. It's out of Psalm 69, verse 22 and 23. He writes, Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. So, And, and how Paul quotes it, he's quoting it out of the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament Uh, The last part says, and bow down their back always. So the question comes back, and, and I've been holding this for you. Why would God blind the minds of some people? Well, let me answer that by asking you a question. If Jesus of Nazareth really was the Messiah, would you want to know that, or in your heart of hearts, are you unwilling to accept it as reality, even if it was true? Now, there are a lot of people who would feel that no, I, I don't want to know if Jesus is the Messiah. Um, if it was true, I, I, I'm not going to believe it no matter what. I'm just, it's not on the table. It's not even something I am willing to consider intellectually. And that's why you're back in Romans one eighteen where it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The fact is if you're not willing to even consider the question of whether Jesus is the Messiah or not, if your religion or your beliefs or maybe your lack of belief makes you say, nope, I'm not even considering the question, I'm not even going to going to be willing to, to try to answer that question, then I'd have to ask you, well, why do you feel that way? Is it because maybe it cost you money? You say, well, I'm going to have to give up my job if—, if Christ is truly the Savior, and I've got to turn to him. Maybe it's your comfort. Maybe it's your friends, your fear. Maybe it's your family that you fear. You say, well, if I became a Christian, I would lose my family members. Maybe it's someone you love. Maybe you are planning on marrying somebody, and they're not a Christian, and and you're not either, and you don't want to risk rocking the boat because of the person you love. So if God knows that you will not respond to the truth, no matter what, if you've already made up your mind that you won't even entertain the question as to whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, then it it actually, it's in mercy, he doesn't show you anything more. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Then then he should, in in his mercy, and, and thank God he does this for many, make you blind so you're not even more accountable when you stand before him and unfortunately spend eternity away from God in hell. There are degrees of punishment in hell, and, and and so it may be an act of mercy that God is not showing you more. But there may be some of you who are willing to ask that question, and you are willing to consider that reality. And I would, would just tell you that if you have a humble heart and you are open to listening, God gives grace to the humble. That's what he says repeatedly. That's, again, both an Old and New Testament concept. So we've seen... Is it true that everybody who is in the Jewish community has rejected Messiah? It's obviously, no. If you went over to Israel today, you would find both those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah and those who do not believe he's the Messiah, and they're living side by side, and they love and respect each other. And I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but but that's the way it's supposed to be, where we're where we can love and accept each other. Uh, We can obviously have our debates and talk it through and try to convince each other, and those are all fine. That's all good. But we respect the person's right to their own conscience. That is a God-given right. So question number one, does this fall mean everybody has turned their back on God? And no, it does not. Secondly, is Israel's rejection final? And the answer again is no, it is not. Paul goes on. He says, "I say that have they stumbled that they should fall, or is it just kind of putting it out there? Is it like they've stumbled and they're they're never going to get up? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Their fall has actually helped bring the gospel to the Gentile world, and what a blessing it has been for us. I don't know if you know much about your ancestors, and thank the Lord I." I uh, know, a, a, you know, I've had a godly family. But if you went back several generations before the Lord's work and his word came to where my roots would be, like England, Wales, that direction, maybe some from Germany, many of those civilizations were in utter darkness, living horrifically evil and, and immoral lives. The gospel changed our society. We owe a debt to the Jewish Christians who gave us the gospel many times at the cost of their lives. The apostles who, who brought the the gospel to the world. The apostle Paul, being one of the martyrs, who's writing this account. So we are there. The the actually the unbelief of Israel was one of the things that opened the door for the gospel to spread to us, and so. It's interesting, he says, to provoke them to jealousy. And the hope is that the blessings upon those who have turned to Christ will actually be a way of of showing the the unbelieving Jewish people that, you know what, God does bless when people walk with the Savior. He also mentions their restoration. It's going to happen. So their restoration will bring even greater blessing to the world. Listen to what he says. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. Paul is saying, look, this has been my whole ministry after Christ called me to this, and that is reaching mostly non-Jewish areas, mostly Gentile areas. If by any means, he goes on, I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So he's saying, I'm hoping that the changed lives in the Gentile communities will help call the the folks, my, my fellow countrymen, my fellow Jews, to Christ. For if they're being cast away, talking about his Jewish brethren, is the reconciling of the world, what will be their acceptance but life from the dead? He's saying, boy, when we get the Jewish community to see the Savior, it's just going to be a wonderful way to reach the entire world. He goes on, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree, speaking about the Gentiles, were grafted in among them, and with them became partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, this is very interesting what he's saying here. He's actually showing us that the the gospel of Christ is all, stems from God's work among the nation of Israel. So there's no neat reason for pride over the Jewish community. We ought to be thankful for what they have brought to us. There ought to also be fear and hope. I'll talk about them in just a moment, but let's talk about thankfulness first of all, because... For God to provide salvation for us, Christ had to die for all of us. Now, the gospel of Christ's death on the cross for our sins has been shared with both Jew and Gentile across the world. And we got that because the nation of Israel brought us our Messiah. They brought us the, the, uh, the Savior. And his death on the cross in Jerusalem is the way that all of us get saved. So for the Jewish people... The Apostle Paul uses three different little pictures to help us to understand their impact on the Christian gospel. First of all, he calls them first fruits. Secondly, he mentions them as the root. The third, he mentions them as natural branches. So, okay, let's take those three pictures and let's think about them. First of all, how do we get the gospel? Well, the Jewish people preserved the truth of the one true God. They were the first nation of people that really stood against the pagan whole idea of multi gods, and so that idea of one true God is like the first fruits of a harvest. They were they were carrying that concept forward. It was something obviously that Adam and Eve had, but was lost along the way by most of the culture that rebelled against the Lord. They also preserved the Word of God in the Old Testament, and they did that very very um, well, very accurately. So we have the foundation of God's revelation. Um, And some have compared, by the way, the Old Testament and the New Testament is like two acts of the same play, and I I think that's a good analogy, that if you really want to understand Act 2, you've got to get a good handle on Act 1. So if you come halfway through the the play and you missed Act 1, you missed a lot of of foundational details, and the truth is, so much of God's Word that is impactful for the New Testament well, it was preserved by the Jewish people in the Old Testament. A third thing we owe to the nation of Israel is they were the nation and the people of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They're the roots of the Savior. Isaiah 11, 1 said this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And, of course, the nation of Israel was the root from which Jesus sprang. They also were almost exclusively, the author's, of both the Old and the New Testament. Matter of fact, I think there's roughly about forty different authors uh, between the Old and New Testaments, and all but two books you'd have to attribute to Jewish people. And so they are the first fruits. They are the natural branches. They are the root of of Christian doctrine and of the the plan of God's salvation. I think that goes a long way of explaining why Satan and those who are listening intently to him often fall into this hatred for the Jewish people. Satan hates that nation because they're the nation that brought us the Messiah, that actually brought uh, all of the important things that would lead us to salvation. Now, we should also, though, we look at the nation of Israel, have a measure of not only thankfulness, but fear. Now, why do we say that? He goes on, um, back in Romans 11 at verse 19, he says, You will say that branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Talking about like the Gentiles saying, well, okay, the Jewish people were broken off so I could be grafted in. Paul goes on, well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and the severity of God. Uh, those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So it is true that the nation of Israel lost her position as God's messenger due to her lack of faith in God and her lack of acceptance of his son. It is also true that mostly Gentiles are being saved by faith today. But of course, again, we, we way outnumber the Jewish community across the world. But the work, of, by and large, is going forth among the Gentiles more than the Jews per se. But and it's also true that those realities then should cause us to fear exactly what happened to the Jewish people, and that is we do not want to get to the place where we're just going through a religion and we're not really knowing God. And if we then there are many Christian people that go to church every week and they go and they do all kinds of good deeds, but the truth is they do not know Christ as their Savior. And if that's where you, you are at, my friend, you may be the nicest person I'd ever want to meet. You may be a very generous person, but you are not going to get into God's heaven going around Christ in the cross. And we ought to fear that, the person who tries to go around. And then, and then thirdly, there is hope, though. There's tremendous hope for the nation of Israel. And the reason why, I'm, by, I'm, not, I'm not implying that God might or might not exalt Israel to the place of the center of his kingdom. That is a certainty. But our hope lies in the reality that God is still saving people across the planet, Jew and Gentile, and the reality that God is going to keep all his promises to Israel. So listen, as I read uh, from Romans chapter 11, verse 23, down to verse 27, it says, and they also, speaking of the Jewish people, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So... Any Jewish person, just like any Gentile person, can turn to Christ as Savior, be forgiven for all sin, and be part of God's uh, work in this generation. It goes on, for if you, speaking to the Gentile, were cut off, cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I mean, it's, it makes all kinds of sense when a, a, a Jewish person comes to accept Christ as Savior. Well, that they're right at home. They're, um, they, and there's so much, again, of their Old Testament that they're going to understand fits with the New. It's, it, it's a wonderful thing. Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Talking again to the Gentile believers. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. So the reality is, God is going to do a great work among the Jewish people still, and among the nation of Israel. He's going to use them in mighty ways, and so we have a great hope and confidence in God's plan to do that. Now, how do we then live with these truths? Well, the first thing is, from verse 28, we should love the Jewish people whether we're loved in return or not. And again, it, it's going to depend on that person. Just like, you know, you. Pro- I, I'm from a Welsh background. Again, my people came from both um, Germany, I have some German and also from Wales. So if, let's say that you had a business dealing with me and you were not uh, satisfied with my work, are you going to say, well, all Welsh people are like that? Or if you ran into two or three Welsh people, are you going to broad brush us all in the same line? Are you going to do that? Well, that's what people are doing with the Jewish people. Okay, you ran into someone you didn't like. Well, guess what? There's every group of people that have people that are untrustworthy, that are people are dishonest. That doesn't, that doesn't condemn them all. Why would, why would anybody do that? That was exactly the same thing that was going on in the whole uh, racial uh, problem of years ago, where we judge a person by the color of their skin. It's craziness. So Paul goes on. He, he says that we should love the Jewish people no matter what. He says, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. And the idea is, that, yeah, they stand on opposite sides of it. They don't believe Christ is the Savior. But concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So we are on opposite sides of the issue of Christ for now. And we can have those debates. We can have those discussions. But we are to love those who oppose us. Never are we to persecute those who oppose us. This is actually, by the way, a hot issue for me as a Baptist. I don't talk much about being a Baptist because, quite honest with you, it is really not all that important. But one of the things that I think that Baptists actually did contribute to the whole uh, thought of our country, and actually much of it has spread across the world. Thank the Lord, is that Baptists since their uh, beginning, and and we're not um, as a denomination. It goes back into as far as I know um, Reformation days. So it's it's not like. Um, There was not a group called Baptists before that. There'd be people that would believe like us. But one of the distinctions of people who came from that background is that they were neither Catholic nor Protestants as Christians. Now, why I say that is because actually Baptists got persecuted by both. The the Catholics would persecute the Protestants, and they would actually literally have wars in Europe over territory. And so if you were, say, in Germany and you were in a Catholic district, then, then the, the Catholic people in that district, they had the upper hand in areas of government and, and many other ways. So the, the Protestants were, may be put up with, other times they may be even rid, uh, taken right out of, the, of that district. And the same thing would happen in the Protestant district. And that is if you were Catholic in there, well, you're, you're, out, of, you're out of luck. You're going to have a hard time living there and you're going to be persecuted in some ways, and you may have to be uh, shaken out of that area as well. What Baptists believe is that the government shouldn't be involved in this at all. That although the government, we believe that it should be Christian, we believed in what was called separation of church and state, which uh, is not the way it's defined today. It's not that we have any problem with people praying in public. It's not that we have any problem with a guy praying at the football game. Uh, congressmen standing up and praying. There's no problem with that. Uh, What we're against is forcing people to convert. We are against persecuting anyone. We believe that God has given each person a conscience, that God respects that conscience. He, He was not forced anyone to believe in him. You have to make that choice. And so, uh, actually, because Baptists would baptize their believers after conversion, and and we believe in by immersion, by actually dunking them, they actually were persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants, and we didn't believe the government should be getting involved. So many times we were on the bottom of the rung of the ladder. Uh, thank God our leaders in this country came to that conviction as well, that the government is a dis- different sphere. It wasn't that we're Against Christianity, they consider themselves a Christian nation, but they didn't feel it was right to force anyone to any certain belief. Now, it also means that, uh, by the way, that as Christians, so we are then not to persecute anyone, not to force anyone to believe like we do, but we are to share the gospel with the world. That includes atheists, that includes Jewish people, Hindus, Muslims, pagans, doesn't matter who you are that the gospel is owed to all. Paul would call himself a debtor to all men. What he meant by that is, I owe everybody a chance to hear about my Savior and to hear about the way to heaven through Christ. It was just the only way. And so then we are to look forward to the day when God embraces uh, the nation of Israel again because she will have embraced his son as Messiah. And that's why he says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God has not given up on his nation. Now, we also ought to live then not only by not forcing people and and making sure that we are trying to persuade people, but not forcing people to believe as we do. We should love whoever it is, whether they love us back or not. But we also should have an appreciation for the loyalty of God to the nation of Israel because that's how God's nature is toward us then. So listen to verse 30 to 32. He says, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has commended them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. He's saying that we Gentiles were disobedient to God for centuries, but received mercy through Israel's disobedience. As, as the uh, nation of Israel rejected Messiah, at the same time that causes Jesus to go to the cross. That's how we get saved. And so we're grateful that Christ was a Jewish man. We're grateful that he died on the cross for our sins. That's how we get saved. So we are, should be grateful as, as Gentiles. And yes, Israel was disobedient to God to crucify the Savior or to, to, uh, to move that direction. But the reality is, when Jesus was going to the cross, that was God's plan to save us. So we all ought to also give back the mercy of God— by presenting the gospel to Jew, to Gentile, to everyone. If God's been merciful to me, I want to pass that mercy on to other people. And then verse 32 tells us that we all need God's mercy. It's not that, well, it's just some of us. He says God has committed them all to disobedience because that's where we're at. All have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. None of us get into heaven on our own. So we need to all share God's mercy then with everybody. We need to to live out the reality of the experience of God's forgiveness and change life that he gives us that enables us then to be a true light for him and a testimony for Christ. And then he closes this chapter with really what an exalted statement of worship of the, the God of, of, of the Bible, the God of Israel. And so we ought to worship our Lord for his great goodness and his great power and wisdom. Listen to what he says. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counsel? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and to him and through him are all things, to whom be glory both now and forever. Amen. So, we ought to be worshiping our God for providing salvation. We ought to be thankful to the Jewish nation for being the roots of our salvation. That's why we talk about the Judeo-Christian ethic. It's, it's true. The roots come out of Judaism. The fruit of it is Christianity. So what do we conclude from all of this? Well, first of all, from these chapters, we see that it's foolish to believe that God is through with the nation of Israel. Chapter nine, we saw that God never saved people by right of their birth. It's always got to be faith. We also saw in chapter nine that God has always called a remnant of Jewish believers out of a host of unbelievers. If you look down through uh, Israel's history, the majority are not following the one true God. Many times, it's many times it's the minority. You also see the Old Testament predicting Israel's rejection, that shows us that God foresaw for this. They stumbled over the truth that they were wicked, and needed a Savior for their sins. But that, that stumbling was not something new, and God foresaw it. So why would we think God had given up on them? We saw from this chapter that God has already shown himself to be more compassionate toward his people than even some of the godliest believers like Elijah. We also saw that God is still saving a remnant of Jewish people who turned to Christ in this day, and this has been going down through the centuries since the gospel was originally uh, proclaimed. We also see that God is using the current unbelief of many Jewish people to help take the gospel to the rest of the world. I mean, again, not that we would have planned on Christ being crucified the way he was, but thank God he was crucified and died for my sins. And so I get the gospel because of that. God has also promised to the nation that he will completely bring them back at a future time in a way that is unprecedented, where the nation will at large, in mass, believe in their God and follow him completely. And you find prophecies of this in the Old Testament as well as here in the New. We see the same God that is loyal to who is loyal to Israel will be loyal to you too if you accept Christ as Savior. And isn't that a blessing? He's made salvation available. We saw that in chapter 10. He's promised to keep you as his child. We saw that in chapter 10 as well. God will not forsake you. And then we also see that this awesome God is willing to reveal himself to us. The bottom line is this. God keeps his promises. God has said he would be loyal to the nation of Israel. He will keep his word. And that means God will keep his promise to you too. May the Lord bless you. If you would like some spiritual help like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at RadioBold.com slash CalkinsBaptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. everlasting life and light, He freely...